I will have Ron Whitehurst coming on in just a moment. If you're like, that name sounds familiar. If you've been around a while, you may have heard from him before. I had him on the show a couple, three years ago, something like that. Really interesting guy. We're going to talk about biological methods of pest control and getting off the toxic pesticide cocktail. And as I always say, once you, it's, it's kind of a, a poison pill that once you go anywhere with it, you go with the pesticides, you end up with the herbicides, you go with herbicides, you end up with the pesticides, it's the, the, the side cocktail, and we don't want that. And so we're going to be talking to, uh, to Ron just in a minute about the work he does there, how he helps people get off that uh, biocide cocktail and the work that he's been doing to change things for the better, even with conventional ag, to try to explain to these people the damage they're doing is not necessary in order to reap a good profit and a good yield of the crop. We'll have Ron on in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, John Pugliano with the Wealth Steading Podcast. I met John Pugliano back in 2011 in Salt Lake City, Utah at a prepper convention. And we just had a really brief initial introduction we started talking a little bit more. He started talking about doing a podcast. I told him to just do it. And we became really good friends. He became part of my expert council, a recurring guest on the show as well, and eventually a sponsor to the show as well. You should definitely check out the Wealth Studying Podcast, where you can learn to grow your wealth like you'd grow a garden. Uh, most latest edition he has is called Understanding the Business Cycle. This is really important to uh to know about right now. His podcasts are not very long. They're 10 to 20 minutes at the longest. Also, he is on Fountain FM, so consider getting over to Fountain to uh, to listen to John, and that way you can send him some value for value love in the form of Satoshis. Because every time he gets a sat, I giggle because he fought me tooth and nail not to get on V for V because he didn't think anybody would do it, and now he is uh, he's rolling some Satoshis. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Um, you talk about a long-term sponsor. I'm not sure there's anybody that's still a sponsor that's been around as long as Knife Kits for the show. They first sponsored the show. I do know this. It was very early in 2010. 13 years we've had KnifeKits.com as a sponsor. They make building knives so easy. Anybody, even I, can do it. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. If you've never checked them out, you should realize they have stuff for like making sheaths and holsters and stuff from Kydex as well. They have some really cool raw materials for handles. Uh, I've got for the people on the video, I've got some of them up on the screen right now. They even have like mammoth tusk. You can actually get fossilized mammoth tusk to make knives with, uh, buffalo horn, all kinds of cool stuff. You can make folders, fixed blades, and it really is easy to learn how to do. Of course, your first one's never as good as your last one. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it is definitely a cool hobby to get involved with. Check it out today, knifekits.com. With that, I'm going to bring our special guest, Ron Whitehurst, on screen uh, in just a second here. There you go. And I caught you right in the middle of a cough, man. I tried to give you the time. and <laughs> yeah, Anyway, Ron, welcome to the – I should say welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Well, I, I appreciate being here. I appreciate what you're doing. 
been uh, listened to about uh, six, seven years now, and um, appreciate all the information that you uh, to bring to uh, our community. Well, thank you for that very much. Like I said, I'm glad to have you back on again. When I saw your app come through, I'm like, I know that name. Mm-hmm. And so I looked you up on the side. I'm like, yeah, I remember that guy, the bug farm guy. Yeah. Um, just for people that are listening to the live audio or the live video, if you guys want to ask questions or get us to talk about certain things, please, the first couple words in your live stream comment, use all caps. I'll start that so Ron and I can come back to you toward the end of the show in a Q&A period. Uh, that'll make things easier. And since I'm multitasking, that'll help me do a good job for you. With that, Ron, I want to start off before we dig into the, the main topic, like, what is your professional background? How did you get into, you know, biological pest controls? How did you get into agriculture in the first place? Like, take us back to your, your probably a while ago like me, but you're spacing out in school and trying to figure out what to do with your life. And how do you end up on this path? Well, originally I was heading towards uh, doing uh, molecular biology, exploring life on the molecular, molecular level. And, um, uh, Finished up uh, school with biology and chemistry background, a lot of math, you know, ready to charge into research. But um, uh, that was 76, and, and uh, uh, there was a recession going on. All the labs were, you know, laying off people, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, hiring anybody. And so uh, I started um, uh, doing, following my next love, which is organic gardening and um Developing myself as a uh, consultant for uh, organic farmers that with my my strong science background, I figured, okay, I could cut through a lot of the nonsense and and see, you know, what's really good, what's really necessary. And uh, so um, uh, started that in Indianapolis where I grew up and then moved with my uh, first wife out to Silicon Valley uh, to pursue her career in um, computer programming. And so um, wound up there when they were uh, cutting down the apricot trees and producing apples, the the computers. And um, uh, started checking out uh, the situation. I got a a license to advise farmers on... um, uh, pest control, a pest control advisor license with the state of California. They require that if you're going to advise farmers, you need to, you know, have this particular license. And um, uh, I had to study all these stupid chemicals I knew I was not going to use and never going to recommend to, you know, the farmers I consulted with. But I got my my certificate, uh, my license, and uh, started going to these meetings. And um, one of the uh, at both meetings, they um, they were talking about okay, you see this bug uses uh, chemical pesticide in the uh, conventional meetings, and then in the organic farm meetings uses organic pesticide. But there was one guy at both meetings who was talking about okay, you see this bug, you know, coming into your field, it's probably migrating in from the chaparral drying up, and all you need to do is plant a row of, of flowering plants along that edge of the field and host the beneficial insects so that when these uh, pests are migrating in, they'll um, uh, be welcomed out to, to dinner, you know, by the, uh, the predators and parasites and such, you know, and of course the, the pests are on the, uh, on the menu. And uh, I thought, that's the technology I yeah. want to learn how to use. And so um, 
been doing that since, since you know 1980. And um, so I, uh, my wife and I run Rincon Beethoven Sectories, a uh, commercial bug farm. We grow the good bugs that eat the bad bugs and help farmers transition from chemically based control to uh, uh, to working with biology, with the working with nature. And so we think that's important. And then we have a nonprofit institute, the Dietrich Institute for Applied Insect Ecology, through which we do training on how to build uh, diversity on your farm to to uh, host uh, um, the beneficial insects will help you manage the pest. So I'm, I'm a pest control advisor, permaculture designer, agroecologist, food web enthusiast, bug farmer, entomologist, pesticide <laughs> activist, climate activist, food forest fanatic, and promoter of the small water cycles. Very cool, man. So, you know, you mentioned going to these meetings and learning about all these chemicals so you could get the certification so you could turn around and not recommend the chemicals. Like, you've kind of gone right at the throat of the beast here. And you spent like 18 months talking to people that you would really refer to as adversaries yeah. um, to try to come to agreement on reducing pesticides. What I've seen mostly out of, let's say, our side of this, I hate using us and them, but in you know, the only way to explain it, our side of this is most people that take an organic, biological, permaculture, non-chemical approach to this, we just kind of go do it and we give up on the system and, and, and just understand that it's an unsustainable collapsing system. So we better go do something. But you're trying to work with that side and bring more of them at least closer, if not over the closer to the fence, if not over it. What made you take that approach and what was it like? Yeah, indeed. You know, what phrase strikes fear in the heart of independent minded Americans? I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. I worked on a government panel, but the recommendations we made were to correct a wrong begun a couple of uh, generations ago. Historically, the university and the uh, extension function as marketing arms of the pesticide and fertilizer industry. Uh, Robert Vandenbosch, uh, a, um, an entomologist with uh, University of California, details this in his, uh, this collusion in the pesticide conspiracy a book that was published in 1978. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, situation has not improved, and GMOs have been added along with the pesticides is something that the, the state is promoting. So once you use synthetic fertilizers, the plants are not healthy, and then you need to use the pesticides to keep to kill the uh, insect pests or keep them in check. Um, pests are, are Mother Nature's way of getting rid of sick and diseased plants. And so, um, you know, the basic principle of organic is to, that a healthy plant resists pests and disease. And so the problem is not that we have got pests. The problem is that we don't have healthy plants. And so um, the mission of Rincon Vital is to promote biological control by natural enemies. And uh, personally, for 25 years and 70 years as a company, We've helped farmers do this transition off of the toxic pesticides by setting up biological control systems. And um, so we know from experience, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis that we don't need any of this, this toxic shit and we don't need those uh, stinking uh, synthetic fertilizers to grow our food, 
fiber and medicine. And then thinking about it, the experience of our great great grandparents and, and then millennia of indigenous uh, farmers that um, uh, around the planet that we've been growing food for thousands of years without using these toxic pesticides. And so not much has changed, you know, in the last um, hundred years. And so we can certainly go back and learn, <clears throat> you know, from our great grandparents and from indigenous knowledge that, that uh, people have been collecting, you know, in the context of agroecology and permaculture, how to um, um, return to this, you know, growing food in harmony with nature. It's only been since 1950 that we've used significant amounts of uh, toxic uh, pesticides and chemical fertilizers in agriculture. So during World War II, the chemical companies, you know, uh, had this tremendous influx of funds to produce stuff for the, the war effort. And so they produced huge amounts of nitrate for the nitrate explosives. And so we converted that into nitrate fertilizers. And it worked great. You could get this little, take this little bag of, of, um, um, of ammonium nitrate, of potassium nitrate, and scatter it around instead of taking a whole cartload of, um, of uh, horse shit or cow shit, you know, out to your field and spreading it around. So it was easier, but, yeah. you know, destroyed the, the structure of the soil. And then the, uh, the nerve gas, the phosgene gas and that sort of thing, they uh, changed that into uh, the organophosphate uh, pesticides, which, you know, destroy people's nerves and give them cancer and little side effects like that that, <laughs> um, you know, we'd rather not have. So um, in the context of this work group with the state, um, uh, they, talk, they developed this language about sustainable pest management, or SPM, which is IPM plus, integrated pest management, plus consideration for, um, for the uh, people involved in growing the food and the farm workers and the neighbors of the farmers. Um, and then um, economic uh, considerations. So it's not technically organic, but organic practices fit in underneath the the, the uh, label or the rubric of the uh, SPM. So when I you know, say SPM, you can think organic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting you bring this up. Yesterday I was talking about uh, natural forms of fertility, and one of them being uh, a plant called azolla, very high in nitrogen. It's been used as fertilizer around the world forever. It's been used in rice paddy systems in China going back thousands of years, probably because it showed up and they couldn't get rid of it anyway, and it worked. Um, but what I brought up with that is like these biologically available sources of nitrogen, the plants can get at that nitrogen. And what you're talking about when they started dumping like ammonium nitrate, et cetera, on these fields back right after the war, the statistic that I found was that about 80% of that nitrogen would end up in the plant. And today about 15 to 17% of that nitrogen actually is able to get into the plant. So we're dumping tons more of this stuff to get the same net amount into the plant, which means all the rest of it is ending up eventually in our water systems. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not like the molecule changed. 
it's the molecules and the life in the soil has been eradicated. And so that nitrogen is either the plant can only take so much of it in without assistance from other life forms. And the rest of it is just eroding because the soil's dead. So it erodes faster. And we've done this to ourselves. And it's, it's interesting to me that we're in a situation now where we're the people that have to prove that what we're recommending works when it's what worked for the vast time that humans have been around and doing agro for 10,000 years We've had this less than 100 year true experiment with this chem ag and we're kind of put back on our heels to, well, we couldn't feed humanity without all these chemicals. Yeah, the, there's a lot to unpack there that um, uh, the let's see, the universities and the professors are paid for with our tax dollars. And so. Uh, they, um, we build the labs, we, you know, set up the universities and all that sort of thing. But the, the professors need some, uh, money to do the experiments, do their trials and so on. And so the, um, uh, pesticide companies, uh, with their, uh, really high profit margin, you know, they were probably making 50, 60% profit margin where, um, Beneficial insectaries are kind of like farming operations, except we've got millions ahead of livestock instead of, you know, um, hundreds or thousands ahead of livestock. That um, our uh, uh, profit margin is right around, you know, 5%, you know. And so uh, there's not a whole lot of money to do a lot of promotion and, and uh, buying uh, professors and politicians and that sort of thing. So the with the tremendous profits of the uh, fertilizer and pesticide industry, they were able to pay the professors in the university to do studies on uh, how these things performed in the field. And uh, so those were the basis of the recommendations for the cooperative extension service, the farm advisors that um, advise farmers, okay, this is, you know, this is the scientific way of doing things. And so that became the basis of, of what was taught for a couple of generations since about 1950 um, in our ag schools, our, our, uh, our um, uh, master gardener programs, and on and on and on. And so that has been, you know, kind of like this, 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 you know, background noise or the subtext, you know, of everything going on in agriculture is this, this promotion because you know this is this is what we have studies on, and so um, with um, uh, with all that, it, it's a steep uphill slope as far as education goes to get farmers to realize, oh, okay, these things that that these uh, smart people have been recommending over the last couple of generations, and that your father and your grandfather used. They're not good. You know, they're actually, you're actually shooting yourself in the foot when you use this shit. That, yeah. uh, you know, I think it's interesting that it is the fact that it will work initially yeah. that stuck us with it because everybody went all in and, and, and the government provided funding for everybody to go all in. And the nice government man and the nice fertilizer man and the nice pesticide man all came out to your farm and told you about money you could get. And then 
it did work. Like our yields did go up. And one of the problems we have, I think, is that people on our, again, I hate us and them, but people on our side of this don't acknowledge that this works for a time. And it's a, it's a, it's a, the, you know, it, it declines across the, the sphere of time and it works less and less and less and correcting the problem becomes more and more difficult. So the existing farmers just double down on what they already know, more chemical, more fertilizer, more GMO seed. And we're kind of in this place where these, these guys feel stuck because what they'll tell you is don't tell me, buddy, because I'm the one that's going to lose what I have if I don't get production this year. I don't have time to bridge that. But there are ways to do that. And I think that's part of what this working group that you were part of in California was looking at. Can you can we dig into that a little bit? Like sure. what 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 exactly was this work group and how did you end up being part of it? Yeah. So, so back up to, just to your talk about uh, it worked initially. That was when we had a lot of organic matter in the soil. Yeah. And, and organic matter is kind of like our, our short handle for saying life. Yeah. The, the, there was a huge number of, of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, ciliates, all, the, all this incredible life forms in the, the soil. And so the use of the chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides actually killed off that, those life forms and converted their bodies into nutrients for yep. the plant. And so, um, they, um, <coughs> so you could do that for a little while, while there was that reservoir of life forms and the, you know, the resistant organic matter that you could, um, literally burn up out of the soil. So, you know, going down, starting out 8, 10, 12% organic matter when, you know, the prairies were extant in the middle part of our, our country there, that, um, you know, down around 1, 1.5% 1 uh, organic matter. And um, any life forms there are mostly uh, disease-causing organisms. <laughs> so, you know, not a whole lot of support, you know, from the, the ecology, from the, you know, so the context of applying these pesticides is really important. Okay, so um, there's this really nasty pesticide called chlorpyrifos. It's this horrible brain-sucking pesticide that causes nerve damage and cancer and such. And it is a really bad actor. And so um, a number of, of friends of mine and, and um, the um, um, social justice and and uh, farm labor groups and so on got together and pushed the state to own up and, and uh, ban it in California. In other words, remove its registration so it's not legal okay. for most uses. There was a couple uses that were left, but you know, pretty insignificant, and most of those have stopped. And so, to uh, placate the farmers who said, "Oh no, you're taking away my tools," yeah. They uh, set up this uh, chlorpyrifos working group to look at, you know, okay, in this situation, you know, what uh, less toxic pesticide can we use to manage this pest? And so um, they went through this. They had this big, big spreadsheet of all these, you know, uh, pests and situations and so on. And so um, that was nice and mm, helpful, but... 
a lot of people looked at it and said, no, 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 this is not enough. We want system change. We don't want the next less toxic pesticide. You know, this is this is a a um, uh, a game to perpetuate the uh, the pesticide industry. And what we want is to go back to uh, growing things in, in harmony with nature. And so um, uh, the Sustainable Pest Management Work Group was set up. And there was a broad stakeholder group of uh, 25 uh, people from different uh, uh, aspects of producing food and uh, producing pesticides and, and promoting pesticides and that sort of thing. And so it was incredibly broad spectrum. So there were farm worker groups, there the tribes were represented, um, the uh, pesticide company, um, biggest one on the planet, uh, was there. Uh, Bayer, a Monsanto, and then some commodity groups. Some um, uh, this woman who grows uh, or produces biological pesticides, um, and then um, some people who are concerned with uh, health. There was this uh, Chamaco study that followed the, uh, the effects of pesticides on, on the children of farm workers, and so. Um, the lady that uh, set that up was was one of the members of the group. So we had uh, everybody around the table, and so there was about 25 people associated with agriculture, and then about another eight people that were associated with urban uh, pest control. And so this covers you know the the field agriculture and also in the city. That about half the pesticides used are in the city. And um, there's uh, a lot of spraying for ants and roaches and all that stuff. And then there's um, uh, the toxic baits for the rats and birds and on and on and on. And so uh, they looked at all these structural things that could be done to uh, set the stage so that uh, you didn't need to use anything toxic. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, you, you've mentioned some of the people like how broad was this work group and you know did it did it get anywhere in the end I mean has anything really changed as far as the state of California as far as the practices with this because I find it interesting how toxic some of the stuff is that California's like yeah spray that on the field no problem because <laughs> that prop 20 or prop whatever where like everything causes cancer mm-hmm. everything has a warning label you know, you buy dried kelp and it has a California cancer warning label because there might be a fleck of mercury in there somewhere. And then they're like, OK, with all of this toxin, you know, sprayed on the food that people are eating. Mm-hmm. So what is it we really need to do when it comes down to it is we need to talk to our neighbor, you know, the people that are living next door and, um, that um, you know, drive in, push the button on the, on the remote, and the garage door comes up, and they drive their car into the garage. You know, um, whatever the broad action is, you know, what we need to do as individuals talk to our neighbors and and have those difficult conversations. How do we work together? How do we you know uh, run our communities so that we can have uh, health, security. Um, abundance and uh, not all these other things that are essential to life. And so 
um, we sat down with all these people that, you know, generally considered to be adversaries, you know, on the other side. Yeah. And had those difficult conversations. And um, it was amazing and uh, emotionally draining, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of the time. They're like, what? <laughs> I need yeah. To, you know, you know that, that no, no, we don't need these things. You know, no, um, you can't mitigate that by, you know, putting some language on the label. You know, you're still putting toxins out in the environment. And so um, we hashed through all these different strategies you know, that will help to support farmers and um, people doing pest control in the city and, and so on, how to uh, step, take all these little steps to get away from using the toxins. And so it was an um, amazing process, and uh, I could have wished for more. A lot of, I think everybody didn't get all that they wanted, so... Um, I guess that uh, maybe to say something that if everybody's unhappy, then maybe, you know, maybe it's a good product. Hmm. And so we covered all these broad areas and um, we're finally able to get um, all 25 of, of the members of the uh, work group to sign off on the, the final document that, uh, it's not perfect, but it, it's good enough. I can live with this. And this is what we're putting out to the public then, as mm. far as, you know, literally a roadmap or a path to get off of pesticides. So like, like you, you're saying about, you know, the, uh, uh, the life in the soil and so on, that, that um, you can't go cold turkey. So it's just like getting off of, you know, the, you know, injected, Injecting heroin or, or uh, uh, speed or whatever that you, you can't just um, stop doing it. That that um, we've destroyed the ecosystem using these chemicals, and so you need to have a um, heavy duty support structure to help farmers give them support in that transition. That if they just stop using the pesticides, that uh, their crops are going to be eaten up for a couple of years. Um, by, you know, all, all the uh, insects because they're not growing healthy plants because they've, they've destroyed the soil food web, the uh, diversity on the soil surface as far as plants go, and they've uh, destroyed the, the ecology in the neighborhood, all the birds and lizards and, and um, bats and all these other critters, you know, that contribute to controlling the past in our field. Do you feel that, like, in this group, that voices were heard and was it successful at re reaching a consensus? I mean, you said maybe not everybody was happy and sometimes yeah. that's good. But, like, I think one of the things in a, in a work group for it to feel like it had any level of success is everybody felt like they were heard mm -hmm. and that there was some final agreement that everybody at least got something that they were looking for out of. Yeah. Yeah, so some of the uh, farm worker advocates um, felt that um, uh, sometimes when they were uh, saying what they felt was needed or, you know, their observations or such, that um, those uh, suggestions weren't reliably recorded. 
Yeah. And there's a number of things I said, you know, <laughs> like starting out that <laughs> that the university is acting as a, you know, um, marketing arm of the pesticide industry that somehow that uh, observation didn't get recorded. No, of course not. <laughs> and then after the fact, CAPCA, the uh, uh, California Agricultural Pest Control Advisor uh, uh, organization said, oh, we didn't have enough uh, pest control advisors uh, at the table. And um, I took that as a personal affront, of course, because I'm a pest control advisor and a member of CAPCA, uh, and um, I, I was representing what I thought the uh, pest control advisors should be advising and not, you know, uh, being uh, uh, pesticide salespersons, you know, that have, you know, some kind of extra special um, uh, promotion from the state, you know, by having this license. Yeah, they always claim that pesticide use is science-based agriculture. Mm -hmm. Where the science says this is what to do. Now, how do you respond to that? I'm sure part of that response is going to be, well, what you just said. Mm -hmm. yeah. like science is bought. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't actually think it's a very scientific conclusion that using something that is toxic to people when they eat the food is good science or that destroying all life in a field is good science, or the result that we've had, which is this declining success rate over 70 decades, seven decades now, really, um, is very scientific. So how do you respond? Because I'm sure that there was a lot of science pushback in this 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 group. Indeed. Uh, early on, we heard this, this kind of like um, uh, drumbeat. We need science-based you know, decision-making here. Yeah, and I can agree with that. But who science? Yeah, that uh, remember tobacco. <laughs> there, there's a whole field of tobacco science that uh, it took 50 years from the first study that showed there was a connection between smoking cigarettes and lung cancer to get this stinking little uh, label on a pack of cigarettes that that says you smoke these, you're going to increase your chance of getting lung cancer. 50 years. And during that time, the, uh, the uh, tobacco industry worked with these marketing companies, these uh, public relation companies, to funnel money into these, these um, uh, professors to do studies that would um, cause doubt as to whether the uh, tobacco was causing these diseases or not. The, the, um, the Merchants of Doubt was actually one of the, uh, the books on, on the subject. Mm. And so um, the, actually the, the same uh, marketing company uh, started working and promoting uh, Roundup and causing, uh, bringing up doubt as to whether uh, Roundup is a carcinogen and causes problems and such. And so um, there was Monsanto engaged uh, industrial biotest labs of, of North, Northbrook, Illinois, to do studies on its pesticide and PCB products. Uh, about seven years after they uh, submitted these these uh, studies and such, shit hit the fan. 
And IBT Labs would be the center. One of the most far-reaching scandals in modern science is thousands of its studies were revealed through EPA and FDA investigations to be fraudulent or grossly inadequate. Um, IBT conducted significant quantities of research for pharmaceutical companies, chemical manufacturers, and other industrial clients at its height during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. IBT operated the largest facility of its kind and performed more than one-third of all toxicity testing in the United States. And so the uh, study, that the initial toxicity study of uh, Roundup was found to be fraudulent. And so uh, uh, Monsanto made a deal with EPA. Okay, we'll repeat that. And to this date, it has not been uh, repeated. So this, the largest selling pesticide on the market is out there without a valid toxicity study. And so we step back and, and observe all of these shenanigans and think, wait a minute, whose science are we talking about here? You know, that um, is it, you know, the, the science that we read about in our school books, you know, you, you make a hypothesis and, and uh, to develop, uh, design some studies to test that hypothesis. And then, you know, you objectively, you know, observe the results of those, those experiments, you know, that, no, this is, this is science in the service of the uh, corporate profit motive. And so when we think do science-based, yes, science-based, but, but not the, the science and service of the corporation. And yeah, so, I mean, because this whole science thing is so, you've got the whole bias built into this, but it's also like you can bias the study by directing what the study's supposed to do, right? So like, what are you studying? Are you studying the impact of this pesticide in trace amounts in my food over 25 years? Or are you studying if I have two fields completely devoid of all biological life other than the corn I put in it, and I spray one with a pesticide and I don't spray another one, the other one with the pesticide, will the one I sprayed have a higher yield, right? Because the answer is probably it probably will because both fields are just out of, out of balance with nature. So you'll need the pesticide to get by. So you can say scientifically based, we get more corn or we get more almonds or whatever you're growing, but it doesn't mean that you've actually investigated scientifically the impact on the environment, the impact on the consumer, the impact on the worker, and the long-term yield impact. You Because what we did with the scientific method, which is really useful to humanity, is we say we have to separate things we know from mysticism. So we need to isolate down to a single variable so that we can test that variable against a control group. It makes perfect sense until you've completely disrupted everything in a natural system, and now you're testing a single variable. Now, that science can be peer-reviewed, and the peer group goes, they did what they said, their conclusions match their research, and so this is a valid study. It doesn't actually say that the peer review doesn't mean you're right. It means you did what you said the way that you did, and the conclusions you got from doing it the way you said you would do it are valid for that method, if that makes sense, right? It doesn't mean uh, we now all bless this as the way. But that's how it gets presented. 
So when we look at an agricultural field, we're looking at a chaotic system that there's uh, all kinds of things going on. There's influences coming in and out. And so it's, it's totally absurd to have, you know, uh, set up a, a linear, conventional linear uh, experiment in an agricultural field because you can't con con control all the variables and, you know, fields next to each other, they're going to have different influences. Um, and so what we need to look at that situation is the mathematics of chaos that uh, for chaotic systems the best thing you can do is do a bunch of trials or observations and then see where you get a cluster of results versus you know yes or no and um, so when you think about it in those terms you know repeated observations over a number of years a number of of farms and that sort of thing um, are more valid than uh, a supposedly controlled experiment over one season on one farm. And so to do research on that, the most effective way of doing that is to go down to the local coffee shop and talk to the old timers and say, okay, when this happened, you know, uh, you know, a decade ago, you know, um, how did you manage it or, or, you know, what are the influences that, that cause, you know, these bugs to come into the field or, or uh, what are the surrounding conditions when you have a major uh, powdery mildew, you know, show up on your crop. And so um, talking to the old timers, you know, you, you're harvesting all those observations over many years and, and uh, in a community over uh, quite a few uh, different farms and situations and such. And so what are, uh, we explored in a separate um, subgroup, uh, ways of knowing. And so there's a, a strong push, you know, for this conventional science. And so, um, you know, bringing up some of these, these problems, you know, with the tobacco science and the IBT labs that um, uh, was faking, you know, these, these uh, toxicology studies that um, we needed to look at other ways of knowing. So, uh, you know, some of our friends with the uh, indigenous uh, groups, you know, were strongly supportive of looking at traditional ecological knowledge, TEK or uh, IK, indigenous knowledge, um, as a valid uh, way of uh, looking at, at um, what, is, what, is, what is true. So uh, in... Conventional society, our culture here, you know, we've accepted science as the arbiter of what is true. And uh, we kind of put a, give a nod to experiential knowledge. And then uh, sometimes we uh, uh, talk about um, uh, direct cognition, you know, of just realizing things, you know, on a, on a spiritual level. So there's this broad range of, of, of ways of knowing things, of what ways of uh, understanding the system that, you know, produces our food and how to evaluate it and how to move forward and how to refine the system to um, 
uh, grow things more in harmony with nature. And, you know, we've kind of hit on this, but this is an uphill battle. So you guys came out of this work group with some level of a roadmap. Can you talk about how that might work and how is it going to be successful in the face of a huge amount of influence where we basically have government for profit? We have regulatory capture. We have capture of the university system. So what's it look like and how, do, how does it actually get implemented with that opposition? Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts to the whole thing. So starting out um, with uh, regulation. So uh, DPR um, could not register the highly toxic, highly hazardous materials. So they're not legally available to farmers. When you think about that in, in context of community rights and so on, um, here the state is giving a license to these pesticide companies to sell to farmers these toxins that go out into the environment and they uh, cause harm to people and they uh, harm the environment. And so um, that is um, uh, not considering, you know, the uh, the health of the farm workers, the health and welfare of the, the neighbors and so on. So these farmers are putting toxins out into our space or in kind of formal legal terms into our common area. And so we need to have a voice in this. And, and um, uh, our voices as individuals has been suppressed, but now they're listening. So we need to raise our voice and say, you know, this is no longer acceptable. And then pest control advisors on, under these, uh, <clears throat> these plans will no longer be able to get paid for recommending toxic pesticides. There's about 4,000 uh, California licensed pest control advisors in the state that recommend hazardous pesticides. Uh, and when they recommend these these pesticides, they make more money. So there's there's an economic incentive for them to uh, push the stuff that's going to help them make the the pool payment or uh, pay for uh, uh, Sally's uh, 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 college uh, bills and so on. And uh, farmers have relied on these guys to to advise them for so long that they don't know anything else. So we need to have a, a, a CY, a, a cover your, your assets, you know, program for the farmers, a safety net, as it were. Mm -hmm. They're taking risks. Um, we need to pay them to cover losses when they, they use these uh, SPM programs, like something like uh, USDA crop insurance. Every time you put a seed in the ground, you take a risk at, at, at mm -hmm. every turn that there's all these different influences of things might go wrong. And as, as you build the, the life and diversity in your soil, in your environment, then um, you'll be able to, um, you will, you'll take less of a risk when you put that seed in the ground and um, be able to have more assurance that, that you'll be able to get a, a crop and be able to pay your bills and continue farming the next year. Um, 
And so these farmers are going to need a lot of help. So there's a lot of aspects of, of support for farmers to get, you know, good, solid knowledge on how to do this. So um, we, our number of uh, farm advisors has dropped by about 50, 60 um, percent in the last uh, decade or so. And so, you know, getting more farm advisors, especially that are uh, have um, credentials in organic farming and biological control, would be uh, really helpful. And then, um, who's the best person to, to teach a farmer something? <laughs> it's another farmer. Sure, sure. And so, setting up these situations where you can have peer-to-peer -peer, uh, sharing of knowledge, you know, are extremely valuable and, and extremely effective. And so, uh, having some support for these local uh Farmer groups to get together and, and talk through, you know, okay, here, here's this problem, you know, what's everybody, you know, do for this situation and just kind of compare notes and, and uh, hash out, you know, some of the better programs for them. And then uh, markets. Um, we can favor food grown without pesticides, call it uh, SPM organic, and especially uh, local, which in California means, you know, grown in California. All this stuff is very exciting. So uh, the state recommended preference in purchasing um, how to buy food for all the kitchens and hospitals, jails, prisons, schools, university, cafeterias, all these places where the, the state is feeding people. Mm. That um, uh, Think about it. If, if all those uh, facilities would have uh, starting out, you know, like maybe a um, – 10% uh, local SPM priority, and then going up to maybe 60% uh, over a period of, of a number of years. That would be a tremendous increase in the market for uh, local organic food. And so uh, that will, you know, kind of uh, float all the boats of all the, all the farmers in those areas that to grow for that market. And so there's some things that could be done in those situations where you, the, um, the uh, facility would, you know, uh, kind of prepay or guarantee that, okay, if you grow this for us, you know, we'll, we'll cover your losses or, you know, through some kind of state insurance uh, program that would uh, help support them and give them confidence to take the risk to, to grow their food. So my first priority would be for daycare centers for kids. That um, it's exciting how food is sourced uh, that supports farmers to stop pesticides. So basically, we'd be paying them with market access. Mm. Imagine uh, serving healthy SBM, organic, pesticide-free food in hospitals that actually supports the health <laughs> of the patients. <laughs> what a novel idea! And especially, you know, for like for drug rehab centers and mental hospitals, you know, where they're already challenged with, you know, their um, metabolism, not, you know, supporting their, their healthy thoughts and so on. You know, having healthy food would be critical, you know, for those. And then bank loans, insurance, and, and a number of other programs like this. Farmers, organic farmers are penalized for using organic methods, you know, today. That um, historically it's been uh, difficult, or uh, but mostly impossible for organic farmers to get um, 
FDA uh, loans for their crops if they're not going to be spraying with all these toxic pesticides. And uh, similarly for a number of institutions in the state, so that there could be uh, pressure put onto uh, the uh, the banks and the uh, lending institutions uh, to uh, support these farmers you know, in their transition. And access to land. Uh, some places in uh, a lot of places in California, you can't uh, purchase land and pay mortgage by uh, growing veggies or fruit. Um, a couple of years ago, you could uh, pay for the mortgage by growing cannabis, but the market's fallen out of that. So <laughs> I think current price is something like 300 bucks a pound, you know, which um, doesn't support, you know, a whole lot of uh, input and labor and such. Um, but um, we, the average age of the average farmer is about 60 now in the United States. And so just to replace those who are going to need um, – a lot more farmers trained, especially in, in, in biological methods of farming. And if we're looking at decreasing the size of the farm, so it's more, you know, human uh, powered and um, uh, animal powered versus, you know, powered with these these huge behemoth tractors that, you know, uh, have to uh, huck your, your farm up to eyeballs, you know, to be able to acquire them. That, um, we're going to need a whole lot more, maybe a, a tenfold uh, over you know, replacement of those um, current farmers to farm on little plots of land and feed their neighbors, feed their communities. Now, we don't need to fucking feed the world. That's a marketing hype from the fertilizer industry. Yeah, yeah. That, um, okay, um, we need to make our farm a sacrifice zone so that oh, we can put all these chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides because we've got to feed the world. Who yeah. gave, gave us that mandate? You know, anyway, it's like, whoa. Um, well, there's a lot of BS that were sold on the line of that the United States is responsible for the whole world, right? Yeah, we have to yeah. feed the world, we have to defend the world, we have to protect the world, we have to dictate who's allowed to do what. Mm-hmm. It's the same pattern, right? Yeah, you get yeah. the same pattern over and over again. We have this moral obligation of Americans to worry about everybody in the world who has lots of oil and gas. Maybe not this place, but that place. If it, and if it's convenient, then it's the whole world, right? Yeah. Like, so we'll we'll tear the hell out of this place. We'll ruin it. We'll extract all our rare earth elements, but we have to feed these people. (laughs) It's the same pattern. But when you were talking, and there's probably people who expect me to hammer you for this as an anarcho-libertarian. I'm not big on government anything, but I'm also a realist and a pragmatist and understand where we are. And a lot of this money is being spent anyway, and it's how the system runs. And if we can redirect it, then maybe we can actually get somewhere better. Uh, because when you were talking about like some level of insurance if a crop fails in the first year, they have lower yields and all. Earlier, you'd mentioned a drug addict, right? And like, yeah. I think this is an analogy we need to keep coming back to with this. The longer a person's been on drugs, the harder their rehabilitation is and the more professional help they need. Somebody that went out and used drugs a few times started to get the monkey on their back of addiction, but they didn't really go down the tunnel and they realized, whoa, wait, they may not need to go to a rehab center. They might not need it. They might just go no more drugs. Boom. 
But if you take somebody that's been on drugs for a couple of years on a regular basis, especially something highly addictive like like meth or heroin or something like that, some of those people, if you do not put them in a proper medically supported rehab, will die. Okay, some of these farms are that heroin addict or that opium addict or whatever. Like they are at the edge of whether or not it's going to survive as a farm in the first place. And if we don't have some sort of a rehab program, then they're not going to make it. But that same drug addict that's going to die in 10 years, he'll at least live 10 more years if he keeps doing his drugs. And that's how a lot of these farms are going to be. If we don't create this transition zone for them, they're going to be like, well, I'd rather survive another 10 years than die now. That's the business decision being made. And if we don't legitimately accept that reality, we're not going to get anywhere because this is what I've noticed. I love the peer-to-peer thing. The farmer who's like, look at all of my yields. Instead of growing two crops, I'm growing 10 now. I'm making 10 times more money. My inputs are almost nothing. That farmer that does that talk and that education, he's always like, and we're now in year 12. And when he goes back and tells his story year one and year two, they're generally not very good. And he had to get through that to get to where he is. And it does sound a lot like a guy walking in front of a narcotics anonymous group and going, you know, I'm a recovering addict and I've been, you know, I've been a recovering addict since, you know, 12 years ago and my life is great now. He usually has a story about hitting rock freaking bottom where those other people are at the beginning. And if we don't create that support system, then that, that problem, eventually I believe it will correct itself because we won't be able to produce food with it anymore. And we'll have to do something else. But I think it'd be better to save the patient. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's often it's often quoted that we're destroying the uh, life, the tilth in, in the soil in the Midwest, you know, the breadbasket of the country. And that um, oh, a number of years ago, they were talking about 60 more harvests before the soil is completely played out. So imagine the Gobi Desert in the center part of the United States that, you know, that's that's where we're headed. And, um, um, uh, you know, as far as climate change, um, there's CO2 is important, but that's like five percent of the uh, effect of global warming uh, gases. And the most important one is water. That. We need to manage our water more effectively. So when you destroy the tilt, the structure of the soil, so that there's air pores down through the uh, the whole uh, structure of the soil, held to you know those help, uh, pores are held by uh, bacteria and fungi, you know, working together to to make this three dimensional structure. So you have a balance of uh, mineral particles of water and air in um, in the physical structure of the soil. So that when the rain falls, it soaks in. If there's uh, nothing covering the soil and the the soil structure is tight and and um, destroyed from tilling and use of fertilizers and herbicides and such, the water hits the the surface of the soil and pounds it like a hammer and uh, seals that soil surface so the water runs off, carrying, you know, soil, the, the, what, what's our biggest export? 
uh, agricultural export. It's it's soil <laughs> going down the Gulf. It's going down every river out to the ocean and uh, creating dead zones around the uh, estuaries. So um, we need to think about the uh, the basic principles of healthy soil. You know, keep it armored. You know, roots in the ground as long as you can. And um, so you think about it. Um, you, you know about latent heat of evaporation, right? Yeah. You, you get out of the pool and the wind's blowing. You feel cold. Yeah. Because the the uh, water evaporating yeah. is carrying the heat away. Yeah. And so uh, when you think about this, the hard, compacted soil, when the sun hits it, it heats up the soil, and then that creates um, uh, sensible heat or very heat in that area. And so that's a big part of our global warming. And so then we move that to, to moist soil, and the sun hits it, the water evaporates, it carries the heat away. Better yet, you know, you've got plants growing on that soil. And as when the sun hits the plants, um, the plants transpire, pulling more water up from, from its roots on. And in the stoma, the breathing holes of the leaves of the plants, there's these bacteria like uh, Aerobacter orogenes. And it just happens to be one of the best things for nucleating a million molecules of water to form a droplet of rain. And so having plant cover on the surface of the soil, you can grow rain and you can moderate the heating effect of the sun. And so we, we have an existential imperative here to take care of the soil, to be able to uh, harvest the water, keep it in place instead of causing a flood, you know, downstream and to mitigate, you know, the, the heating effect um, of, of the sun. You know, the heat island effect is real and you can see it in a lot of ways for yourself. One is I live in Dallas, Fort Worth area. I'm fortunately out of the main part of the city. But you watch these storms come in this time of year, and we're always concerned about hail, tornadoes, and straight-line winds here. Mm -hmm. And you watch these storms, and as soon as they hit the metro areas, they explode. And they explode because of that heat island effect of all that concrete. And you think, well, out in the country, not as much. But like you're saying, when you have exposed dry soil, I, I'm sure you've had this experience. You're, it's hot, kind of hot out, kind of feel the heat from overhead, but you're walking through a field with a lot of vegetation or something. You don't really have shade, but you have covered ground and you don't feel a lot of reflective heat from the ground and you walk over bare dirt and it's all, it's not quite as bad, but it's almost like all of a sudden you're walking over a sidewalk or a parking lot. Yeah. And if we think about how much of the year some of these fields spend where even if there's some growth, it's, you know, it's a soy field that the plants this big and 80% of the dirt is exposed in surface dry. Like that is a massive amount of heat island effect. And not only will it, you know, I talk about how to cause storms to blow up. Well, that's if there is a storm, a lot of times that heat island effect can also cause high pressure systems that make storms not happen in the first place. So you end up with droughts you throw a La Nina cycle on top of that, like we had the last two years and you got a whole lot of the country that's like 
a new color red for the drought map that they had to invent because it was that bad compared to typical. And so I think that's something that can't be overlooked is there's so much to this. You know, last time I had you on, we spent most of the time talking about beneficial insects. And, and what we're getting in today is there's, a, there's hundreds of factors in this. And I think this is what happens when somebody starts to systematize a thing into a commodity. Every time there's a problem, there's an incentive to never say, OK, what do we change? Let's put it back. It's, well, what can we add? It's additive rather than retractive. So we start doing chemical fertilizers. Everything grows really good. The life in the soil dies. We start having pests. Pests come well, well, instead of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What this didn't used to be a problem. What did we do that made this happen? Maybe we need to go undo it. We say, I, I know we'll take this this other toxic chemical and we'll kill the bugs. So we kill the bugs. And now we further denuded the life in the fields. And then all of a sudden we start having massive problems with weeds. And we say, hey, these are tall crops. We used to not even care about weeds. The weeds grew underneath them. It didn't matter. Now the weeds are a problem. Instead of saying, well, what did we do? Oh, okay, now we need to spray something on that will kill the weeds. But wait a minute. If we do that, you know, it'll kill the plant that we want to grow. Okay, so now instead of saying, wait a minute, how do we create this, you know, massive frankenweed problem? We say, I know, we'll develop a seed that's genetically modified. So now we can spray the herbicide on top of the food that we're going to eat and kill the weed without killing the, the soybean or the, the corn or what have you. And it is that additive approach where we end up with this multiple layer of problem. And they say, well, if you stop doing this, production will crash. They're not wrong. We have to stop doing all of it or at least key components of it in that transition phase. Yeah, so it, um, it, the, the, the heat island uh, actually pushes the, the storm clouds away. And, and so it rains where the soil is moist. And so uh, taking care of the soil is, again, you know, an ecological imperative, an existential imperative. And uh, the use of the chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides and so on uh, is an essential part of taking care of the soil. And so um, these practices to get off of the toxic pesticides are one that is very important as far as the soil health and then um, and as far as uh, climate change and climate mitigation. So the more that we take care of the soil, the more, uh, more it will rain. So I think a lot of the drought in California is um, self-inflicted by our, our not taking care of the soil. And um, we've got, you know, huge areas of, of land that is uh, in row crop veggies or in, in orchard trees where they use Roundup to keep the weeds down. And um, uh, so it's a major problem here. So, um, again, you know, we, we can grow rain and yeah. focus on all these things. So it's, it's real simple, actually, that, that we just need to change all of everything right now. And so we're going to have, have to have everyone working together to get the job done. So, yay, team. We're on it, it. It seems like a big, a big tall order, though, to get such an entrenched system moving. 
I guess the only thing that gives me a lot of hope that it's going to happen is I think the problem is becoming so obvious that even the people in the the defenders of the problem, the regulatory apparatus that's been captured is like, yeah, guys, if we keep doing this, we're all going to starve. Right. Because we talk about the risk to the farmer if they if they change too quickly. But the risk to humanity is no food, because I promise you, pesticide might kill you sooner or later, but no food will kill your ass quick. So we need to start growing our own. I teach that all the time, encourage local agriculture and all. But we also have to take a like I I talked about this when I did a, a presentation on permaculture years ago, probably eight years ago now that we underestimate the scale of the problem of food production just in our country. I'm with you. I'm not worried about feeding the world. We feed ourselves first and then we can worry about exports of food. Um, But it was like, it was something to the effect of one, one local average size supermarket in our country. So these were Metro markets because this is aggregate average of everybody about $600 million in sales. For one megamart a year. And so you think about how much food it takes to stock one of those and then start looking around and see how many there are. And this is what we're trying not to compete with, but to replace. And when we start looking at it that way, we start to realize, like, if you have a 50 percent shortfall of production in a single year, we have starving people. Right? If we don't have other places making up for it in some way. And I, you know, when I talk to people from like NRCS and stuff like that, they're like, we know. You don't have to tell us anymore. We know we're doing. So I think there is an impetus there. Do you think it will continue to spread like the kind of thing that started in California? Do you think that'll get out into the broader like United States, you know, EPA and and start to spread around the country? Because if it doesn't, boy, you really better start growing your own food. I, I mean, that's your other alternative, I guess. Well, as you often say, you know, we need to take care of ourselves, our family, and, and then our community. So everybody needs to take uh, some responsibility for feeding themselves. And so even on in a, um apartment with a little balcony, you can grow some lettuces, some uh, uh, culinary herbs or something like that to, you know, supply some of your nutrition, you know, buy your calorie, calories and uh, grow your, your nutrition. So we all need to play our part. And so um, I you know, <laughs> worked almost for a couple of years on this roadmap to get off of toxic pesticides. And um, like any uh, government report, you know, it'll probably has the, the chance of sitting on a shelf and yeah. gathering dust since it's a PDF. It just, you just gave me a flashback to the original Raiders of the Lost Ark and the art box going into the big thing and we've got top men working on it and it's just laying in this giant but like yeah that that's always the risk with government is it not and so what's going to make the difference it, it's all these people standing up and saying we want something different yeah we want healthy food and we want a healthy environment so i, I don't have a whole lot of faith in government um but i have faith in people that uh, working together, working in our community, talking to our neighbors, um, we can uh, progress in a sense, you know, um, to the way things used to be when uh, we grew food 
on our uh, little farms or gardens and shared it with our neighbors and, and so on. There's still some places in the United States, you know, where, where uh, everybody's growing, you know, maybe 20% of their food and then um, swapping with their neighbors, you know, to get another 20, 30% of their food. And um, uh, how can we do this, you know, kind of in a sense, you know, going back to the land and, you know, in style, you know, with com computers and instant communications around the planet and so on. Um, and the, you know, digital currencies are definitely, you know, seem to be a part of that uh, process. But um, seeing, um, seeing all this craziness, it, it uh, breaks my heart because I know that we don't need pesticides and, and we um, are damaging people and wildlife and the environment and all that wasted potential, that loss of opportunity of all these people to live healthy, productive lives that are suffering with cancer, um, ADA, ADHD, diabetes, and, and obesity, uh, when, you know, the solution is simple. Just, you know, eat natural food, you know, uh, fresh, natural, minimal processing as, as you can get. That, that um, it, it Actually, very simple. As Bill Mollison said, you know, all the problems of the world can be solved in the garden. It's kind of figurative and, and also kind of an interesting philosophical take on, on the situation. Indeed. You know, we've been talking about this from a standpoint of like regulatory issues and larger, broader scale. But what you're most known for is, you know, you guys raise beneficial insects and you mm -hmm. help people implement plans. And I think it's important to like talk about how if you wanted to get a specific predatory insect on your property that addresses a specific uh, pest, that's only part of the equation. So like you mentioned earlier that there was this particular pest that was moving in and the solution that the guy came up with was you just plant these you know, nectarary plants so that as they're coming in, they're already being ambushed and creating yeah, habitat. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how you, if you're going to start going to someone like you and purchasing beneficials, that you also need to have a place for them to live mm -hmm. if they're going to stick around for any length of time? So we talked about how with the toxic pesticides and fertilizers and herbicides and all those sides, that um, we pretty much destroyed the environment. So we need to give the farmer some support in that transition period. And so we need to kickstart the biology. And so there's um, some people have been working on, on some pretty sophisticated systems. We're really impressed with the work of uh, John Kemp with the advancing eco agriculture and the uh, combinations of of um, uh, foliar sprays with nutrients and the microbes and so on that, that help to support the plants and such. But um, there's, there's still this transition period that um, uh, you need to uh, observe the pests that are developing and then put out a small number of the uh, beneficial insects that will prey on those pests. So you know, the predators are things like lacewing and ladybugs and and uh, 
surfeit flies and uh, on and on and on. But um, uh, you'll be able to put them out and decrease the pest population. But to get them to reproduce, often the beneficial insects will need a source of nectar for energy to um, uh, get them through their adult stage and give them energy to, to search for the pest so they can lay their eggs uh, next to the pest or for parasites, lay the eggs in the pest. And so um, what we uh, work with farmers to do is to evaluate the relative ratio of the good bugs to the bad bugs. So uh, my father liked both this insect vacuum and uh, uh, it sucks the, the bugs into uh, a very fine mesh bag and can look at that and see, okay, um, we got all, all past insects uh, in this field. So we need to put out some beneficial insects to, to achieve a balance between the good bugs and the bad bugs. Often it's something like if you have 10 pests, you need like one beneficial insect that will feed on those pests to, to bring the balance down in, in a uh, couple of weeks. And um, then if we take a vacuum sample, then and when we see that, oh, okay, um, there's a number of pests here, but there's quite a few beneficial insects here. And the beneficials have the, the a really good chance of controlling the pest insects in, in like two weeks. So then you don't need to do anything, just come back in another week or two and see what the status is. And so uh, there's the basics of integrated pest management in a, in a sustainable format or an ecological format of, um, of monitoring for the pest and the beneficial. Uh, we're using soft pesticides. We're not anti-pesticide. Just uh, use the soft ones. Soap and water is a really dandy pesticide. And we've got at least a thousand years of use history with that, right? So you just don't get it in your eyes and you don't drink too much of it, you know, and you'll be fine. Um, so you can knock down um, pests with uh, soap, oil, uh, clays, you know, like uh, DE or diatomaceous earth or and clay or something like that. There's a number of low-risk ways of managing the, the pest. Build habitat uh, to draw in the beneficials and then um, release uh, uh, beneficial insects. So that um, if you do all these other things right, then you don't need to um, uh, release beneficial insects because you're growing them by the way that you farm. So the uh, process... We know about this. We, we know how to do this now. That mm. um, back in the early days of the organic movement, um, oh, we need just uh, organic matter. We need compost. And so we put this uh, really stinky um, fermented manure onto the field and, and um, you know, <laughs> and it did some benefit, but it kind of set the plants back. So now we know how to make good compost. Uh, we know how to make compost extracts and compost tea to maximize the, the benefits of of a little bit of compost on a, on a big piece of land. And uh, we know a lot more about uh, how to get nutrition to plants using things like seaweed. And then for a, a local DIY, you know, uh, juicing the local weeds and using those as your you know, 
sources for your fertility for a foliar spray. Um, and then uh, a lot of uh, refinements of how to support different things in, in the soil food web. So you were talking earlier about the, uh, the weeds and how, how we need to control them. Uh, you can manage the weeds very easily uh, by just making different minerals available in the soil and having a different structure to the soil food web. So I often think about, okay, trying to convince somebody of this, take a field and let's go along in stripes with uh, certain um, uh, nutrients and uh, soil amendments, you know, like um, lime, uh, sulfur, uh, seaweed, compost, uh, hemic acid, things like that in stripes. And then repeat that um, at um, right angles. And then you say you have combinations of all those different things. And just see what that does to the resonant weed population. Mm. You know, so you'd have these little patches of, of different kinds of weeds coming up. In the average square foot of soil, you'll have 10,000 weed seeds lying there waiting for the right time uh, when their conditions are met for their germination to start growing. I've heard about fields that didn't have clover in them for 30 years. They apply lime to the field and <laughs> lots and lots of clover pops up. So, um, so we can control the weeds and manage them by, um, by uh, our, our nutrient program and, and feeding the soil food web rather than you know, using the chemical fertilizers to feed the plant. Yeah, I think another thing we have to look at with like the the whole beneficial insect thing, like how detrimental the pesticide solutions are. And obviously, if the beneficial is infected with the pesticide, that's bad. But the other way I look at this is so, you know, your lace wings, your ladybugs, et cetera, those are your lions and your leopards, right? Mm -hmm. They're your predators, your wasps are your, you know, your, your, your cougars and what have you. And, and if you think of like Africa and on the plains, if you went out and killed all the zebras and all the wildebeests and all the plains game, and you, you said, we're going to protect the lions and we're going to protect the leopards and we're going to protect the cheetahs and no one will ever hurt them. It wouldn't be long before they'd all be dead too. Yeah. They have to have something to eat. So when we wipe out the pest, the predators die because they don't have any food. And then enough of the pests survive to develop resistance to these toxins. And then the pests come back in abundance and there's no lions. There's no leopards. There's an over, you know, the wildebeest are now eating the, the, the plains to the ground like goats, you know, down to the last speck of green because we wiped out the food supply of the predator and therefore the predator. And so I don't think we can continue to look at seeing any, pest insect at all is a bad thing. If there's not pest insects in some quantity, there's nothing for the predator to eat. So the predator won't set up residence and it won't start reproducing and it won't live where you are. You know, it, it, it needs to have something to feed on. Yeah, precisely. That it, it's not, you know, presence or absence of, of pests. It's, it's the relative numbers. Um, of the you know predators to the um, to the past. So um, in biological control, we we talk about uh, three different aspects or different kinds of interactions. So there's the predators that, that a lot of people are familiar with. So everybody remembers um, 
ladybugs, you know, from their kids' books, you know, eating the aphids and so on. Um, but there's also parasites, and we know about those from the movie Alien, right? Yeah. <laughs> that um, there's something that lives inside of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so the uh, the parasites uh, can feed uh, inside of the insect, or they can be on the outside of the insect. And then there's pathogens, uh, the diseases that make insects sick. sick. One of the first uh, biological insecticides was uh, Bt, or Bacillus thuringiensis, a bacteria that makes caterpillars sick. And so it was fantastic material to come out um, because it was very selective that it just killed caterpillars. It didn't uh, kill bees. It didn't kill um, uh, predatory and parasitic flies and, and or anything else, just, you know, moth larvae. Um, that, um, you know, we're feeding on the, the leaves of the plant. Yeah. So that was a tremendous development. And we also think, need to think about antagonists. So sometimes insects are there and they're taking up space in the, in the plant uh, ecosystem, on, on the plant leaf or whatever. And so if that space is occupied, it's not available to, uh, for other things to come in. Uh, a long time ago, we used to have these things called phone booths. And that was a really great analogy that, you know, when somebody was in using the phone in the phone booth, uh, you couldn't go in and use the phone. I, I need to find another, you know, yeah. analogy for today. <laughs> but um, that um, uh, taking up space is, is an important aspect of controlling pests. And so think about on the leaf surface. Uh, one of the uh, really simple things you can do to manage uh, disease on the leaf surface is just spray uh, whey, you know, the uh, liquid product from making um, um, cheese. Uh, cheese and such, that sort of thing. That um, uh, that has some proteins and things like that that will feed the, the beneficial microbes and uh, they'll uh, grow very nicely and uh, that space on the leaf surface will be taken up and not available for the powdery mildew, uh, uh, leaf spot, uh, all kinds of uh, disease, plant diseases, you know, to come in and um, uh, occupy that space. If one thing's in a niche, then it's hard for another thing to use that niche, right? It displacement theory. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I talk about it with snakes all the time. They're like, I want to get rid of all the rat snakes. I'm like, well, if you want rattlers, right, then that's what you do. And they're like, well, rat snakes don't eat rattlers. No, king snakes do that. You're right. They don't. But they occupy space and they feed on rodents. And that's what the rattler wants. So if you clear out all the rat snakes and all the burrows are open and the rats start to breed, then, you know, your rattlers are going to move in. And I'm not saying if you leave the rat snakes there, they'll never be a rattler. I'm saying that if you remove everything, something will fill, like nature fills vacuums. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I have one pest, actually it's two, but they both do the same thing, that it doesn't seem like anything eats. Squash bugs and squash vine borers. Nothing I know eats them. I threw a leaf covered in squash bugs to some chickens once, and there's like six of them, and they all looked at it like, I don't think so. And then there's the one chicken that's like that buddy you had in school that you could get to do anything. The other chickens are like, give it a shot. So she went down and ate that thing, 
And if you can translate chicken into English, it was, oh, no, 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 no. And she ran away. Like, they, so even a chicken won't eat this thing. And if a chicken won't eat, I don't know what will. And what I'm going to try this year is more of a, a deterrent. What I've heard is one of the best pest deterrents you can spray a plant with is diluted wood vinegar, which is basically liquid smoke that is a byproduct of biochar production. And I'm going to try that on several different squash varieties because what I've done up till now, we have the vine borers so bad. They actually, the squash bugs are, you can basically plant enough squash and they're not a problem anymore. The vine borers, they go into the vine and they eat the center of the vine out. So I've been growing like C. Moschetta species of squash because they grow a really thin, hard, gnarly mm. vine that those things don't want. And I'm wondering, is there anything that eats either one of those things? Because I can't find anything that does. Sure not. Um, they, they call them stink bugs uh, for a reason, that uh, they stink. And yeah. uh, sometimes you can get uh, chickens to eat uh, uh, plant bugs, stink bugs, and um, they'll eat them. But then you may have an off flavor in, in your eggs. So, um, you know, good news, bad news. Uh, but, um, you know, um, we all feed on something and, and other things feed on us that, that um, if uh, there's a bug there that's causing a problem, you have to think, okay, there should be four or five uh, different things feeding on the egg stage. There should be a number of predators on the um, adult stage. There should be uh, a bunch of different kinds of diseases and such. And so um, uh, what's missing here? And, and so with the um, squash vine borer, that's a uh, moth larva. Yeah. So we've got uh, trichogramma, a moth egg parasite that um, uh, lays its egg in um, the egg of the of the, the moth. And so uh, a little wasp comes out of that egg instead of a caterpillar. And so if um, mama's laying her egg on the, um, on the squash vine, then it's available then for um, trichogramma to lay an egg in it and for um, minute pirate bug to, um, uh, to feed on it directly. And so you can mix up the habitat so that you have, um, I remember uh, one planting routine where you'd have um, some, um, uh, do a ring of um, uh, calendulas around the, um, uh, the hill of, of squash and then uh, some um, uh, dill or fennel coriander uh, that has the flowers. So flowers of the parsley family uh, are really great for hosting the, the little parasitic wasps. Mm. So you, you can favor those by uh, building some habitat like that, you know, uh, uh, you know, in the immediate area around where you're growing this, the, um, the squash. And then uh, as far as cultural methods, the, um, uh, it, once the vines start running, you um, uh, just take a, a shovel of dirt and put it over a section of vine where you, you've got a note where the, the joints in the vine are. And uh, the vine will start rooting there. So even if you lose the, the vine near where it started, where the seed uh, started growing, you can have several places along the length of the vine where you have other roots. So it's a, it's a great uh, cultural uh, method there. Mm. And then uh, for the uh, squash bugs, 
you can um, th- these are the bugs versus the beetles, right? You know, the, yeah, the, the squash bugs are the ones they look they look kind of like a stink bug, but they're okay. they're not the primary stink bug we think of. And they're what happens? You you can it, see the problem with the vine borer. They'll lay their egg basically inside ah, okay. the vine. The squash bugs, you know, at least maybe they're subject to attack because you pull back squash leaf when they start showing, the squash bugs start showing up, and you'll see a little cluster of eggs. Mm-hmm. And you can mechanically control that. It's just a lot of work to stay mm-hmm. on it. You take a, a, a piece of, uh, like, duct tape and put it around your hand so it's double-sided, sticky, and wherever mm-hmm. you see those eggs, you just, mm-hmm. you know, you peel them off and throw them away. Uh, but, yeah, that those friggin' vine boars, man, they get in there. The squash bugs just kind of suck juices out of the leaves and the plant you know if it doesn't get hit too hard it'll recover and i've also like they like to come out in the evenings in the morning so i'll go out and if there's a bunch of nymphs on one leaf that plant doesn't need that leaf i'll cut that leaf off and throw it in the freaking incinerator and there you go um but i just i have never found anything eats them yeah yeah. so if you grow like a bunch of um catnip Mm -hmm. and then right as it starts to flower when the flowers come on that kind of really starts attracting them uh, for whatever reason, you put a big ring of like cut uh, catnip around it. It's supposed to repel, but I've never tried that. Um, the um, there's a number of little tiny wasps that that feed on the egg stage of, of different stink bugs and such. Okay, and, and so um, hosting those and then the predators like the minute parrot bug um, uh, on any kind of flowers, you can grow flower thrips. These little teeny tiny things that, when you look at the petals of the flowers, uh, they look kind of um, burned or trashed or distorted. Mm-hmm. That's the, the uh, from the feeding of the um, uh, Western flower thrips. To modern form, you just take a piece of white paper underneath some flowers and then, then tap it, and um, the um, the thrips fall out onto the paper, and so you can easily see them. Those are fantastic food for the minute parrot bug, which is a really great predator on, on a bunch of different kinds of eggs. And so um, just having uh, any kind of flowers out there uh, will give you good habitat for the minute parrot bug. So interplanting with uh, a lissom or uh, some low, low growing flowering plant that um, you can grow mm. the uh, flower thrips on. So like <laughs> or something like that, like a sprawling small flower. Yeah, something's not going to in- interfere, you know, with the the growth of the squash vines, or something that's tall, you know, like yeah. the, the dill, fennel, coriander, cilantro. Yeah. And then um, there's a, a seat of the pants uh, biocontrol that you can do. So you can um, collect some of the um, the adult stink bugs, and then uh, put them into a blender with a, a drop or two of, um, of liquid soap or detergent, and um, blend them up, and then put them through. A, a screen or sieve, you know, so you can um, get out the chunky bits and then uh, put that in a sprayer and then uh, spray that out onto your plants. Mm. And um, it will repel or make the other insects sick, you know, that uh, you, there would be uh, different kinds of pathogens and parasites in, in the uh, blended up uh, bugs. And so you'd be spreading, you know, this into the environment. And there's probably some alarm pheromones and things like that. You, you kind of know notice that when you go into a room of dead people, you don't think about eating, you know. Yeah. yeah. 
so the, the uh, wood vinegar is also another thing that, oh, no, fire, fire, fire. And every, yeah. Everybody runs away. And so you can simulate, you know, like having a, a fire, you know, in the area by just you know, spraying some of the wood vinegar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've been talking lately about how there are plants in nature that until they're exposed to smoke, they literally won't produce seed. Like it's a biostimulant as well. And healthy plants are always the, the first defense, right? Like, you know, we, we, it, you, there's so many analogies between other blocks of science that have just lost the plot. Like when you think of cancer, like the best thing you can do to help somebody, especially in early stage cancer, strengthen their own immunity. Yeah. Your own immunity is your best defense. So like a healthy plant is the best defense against any of these, uh, these pests. I've heard from some people like Helen Athro that if a, you know, a plant has a high enough bricks rating, a friggin' pest won't even eat it. Yeah, yeah. Like they don't want it. Like that's insect food until you make it healthy and it becomes human food. And if insects are eating your plants, you have work to do so that your plants will be healthy enough that insects won't want them. Yeah. I, I think there's something that I don't know. If, I don't know if you can take that to the bank on every plant with every pest in every situation. Right. Cause they got to eat something, but I think there is something to it. And I think, there is no doubt if you have you, you plant, you know, I don't care what it is. You plant 10 plants in a row that are the same plant and you look at one and it's just not doing as well as the others. When the pests show up, they will hit that one first. And it'll be every time that it'll get hammered uh, where we want the best looking plant. They kind of want the one that's sickly. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Dykstra. Um, Dykstra Labs in Florida uh, has some really great uh, uh, videos on YouTube. Uh, I think it's on the uh, Advancing Eco Agriculture channel on, on YouTube uh, about this interaction that as you you progress up the uh, the bricks level uh, with the the in a sense the health of your plant uh, with uh, very low bricks you see the aphids and then. With higher bricks, you might see um, leaf hoppers or something like that. And then uh, a little higher bricks level, you'll see caterpillars. And then um, uh, up around 10, 12 uh, bricks, you'll see grasshoppers. And then 14 bricks, nothing. You know, it's just, and again, you know, it, it's a principle, but, you know, um, it's, it's not an absolute. And so uh, we've been promoting the idea with, uh, you know, some caveats that, okay, it, 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 it's an effect and it's important, but uh, it may not be the end, you know, total end game, the totality of it. The, the basic idea is that, that um, uh, unhealthy plants produce these partial proteins that are, you know, very sweet to the taste of the insect. And as you, the health of the plant improves, the, uh, Proteins are, are complete and whole and that insects actually can't digest them. So they can eat the, the plant, but they won't get any nutrition from them. Yeah. So they're not going to be growing or developing. So it's, it's, it's fascinating the, the stuff that we're putting together now. And so, uh, we can, we can do this. We can grow healthy food and healthy environment and, um, Grow our, our 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 culture to one that supports life. Yeah, it's going to take all of us working together, all of us doing our part. Everybody, uh, wherever you are, you know, there's some 
piece of soil around you, whether you own it or not, you can take care of it and grow some flowers, throw some mulch down, you know. Um, and as goes soil health, goes all health, including human health. I mean, if you want to see a sick society, look at a society whose soil is sick, and you will find a sick society. And that's what we have today. We have a sick society in America in a variety of ways, but from a pure disease standpoint and a lifestyle disease standpoint, and it it stands to reason. And you know, people getting taken out by what essentially was a a bad cold is an example of that because if you're nutrient deficient, you're no different than that plant, that pest, that virus, that, that bacterium, it's going to infect you the same way. Um, on that note, can you tell people like if they want to get advice from you, maybe purchase some beneficial insects and stuff like that. And I've got all this stuff in the notes already, but just let people know about it. And if you guys, if you don't get it written down or something while you're listening, let's just go to the show notes today, episode 3279, It'll be on the audio side if you're watching the video. There's a link down there. That'll go live about an hour after Ron and I will finish up the live stream. And everything that Ron can tell you about, because I went and looked and found everything and stuck them in there, so you'll be able to find all his stuff. But tell him what you've got available to him, Ron. Oh, quite a bit. <laughs> like I said, so we've been doing this as a company for 70 years, so we got quite a, a body of, of literature available. So I, I did put the links for the um, – SPM work group in into the the private chat if you can put those in the okay I, I'll add that put it into the group chat or uh, to the uh, to the uh, notes of the uh, uh, for the podcast yeah. um, our main website is rinconvitova.com uh, rincon after the beach rincon beach um, r i n c o n and then vitova contraction of live egg Vita Ova uh, from the Latin V I T O V A dot com and then uh, Dietrich Institute dot org. That's Dietrich D I D I E T R I C K uh, uh, Institute dot org is our um, nonprofit through which we do training. And then uh, we developed a whole bunch of, of uh, material of to promote our view of the sustainable pest management process. And those are available at bugfarm.us. So, um, and then we have an 800 number. It's 800-248-2847. Last four digits spell bugs. So pretty easy to, to, to remember. And we're open to discussing pest problems that um, uh, we're kind of novel as far as businesses go. We want to talk to our customers and we want to talk to people. And this is our mission to help people get off of these toxic pesticides. So if we can help you control some kind of pest in, in a wide range of different situations, you know, give us a shout. We'll give you some suggestions. If we can sell something, fine. If not, fine. You know, uh, we're still fulfilling our, our mission. Um, to get people off of these toxin pesticides and um, grow healthy food in a healthy environment. So again, I appreciate um, the ability to talk to your crew here and appreciate what you're doing and uh, keep up the good work. We, uh, we, there's a lot that we need to 
to relearn that has been forgotten or actually, you know, they, they burned the books on biological control, you know, in the last um, uh, couple of generations here. We need to reestablish that, that information, connect to, um, to our elders and, um, you know, to the wisdom that they had as far as, you know, how to live on, on the land, you know, in harmony. We'll set a few questions and comments if you can before you go. Sure, sure. Yeah, a builder of Castle says, what happens when the toxic chemicals stop working on the industrial farms? What happens when the soil no soil longer grows food? Well, hopefully we figure it out before we get there, because my answer to that is a lot of people starve. Well, it's what we're seeing. What we've been seeing for the last, you know, 30, 40 years is, is the pesticides don't work anymore. So they, they, come up with something um, new, different, more toxic, that sort of thing. That, um, you know, the new sledgehammers, you know, to try to beat them, beat Mother Nature into submission. So there's a number of pesticides that have got off a of market because the, pesticides, the, the insects developed resistance to them or the, the, the diseases they were supposed to control developed uh, resistant to that strategy of trying to kill them. So, um, you know, to date we haven't seen any, any evidence of uh, insects becoming resistant to being eaten. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, if you're eaten, you're gone, you know. Yeah, I remember a lot in saying There's no that memory there. there. There is there is no resistance to being eaten by a lacewing. Yeah. It, it doesn't exist because you're dead because you're eaten, right? Resistance I mean, is futile. It is futile, right? And, like, I, you got to think about what we're playing around with when we're using chemicals to kill insects, bacteria, et cetera. So there's like 8 billion people in the world. If you released a virus that was going to kill 98% of humanity, humanity would reconstitute into something new. And the 2% that survived and reproduced eventually would go back to having 8 billion people and they'd be resistant to this thing. But there's 8 billion people in the world, and it's more people than ever existed at any time in the world, as far as we know. There's more people now than all the people that lived from, like, 1,500 up until 100 years ago, right? Okay, that's how long it takes us to reproduce. We go in and we kill an insect that one mother insect makes 1,000 eggs. Even though a very small number survive the chemical warfare we, 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 we come out with. In five generations, it's hundreds of billions on a thousand acres of that pest that is now completely resistant to that because their, you know, their reproductive rate exceeds ours by numbers that the human mind, like you, people think they know what a billion means. No, you don't. You can't get your head around a billion anything if it's actual real things. So a billion, then there's probably a billion fire ants on my three acres. So if I go out there and use a toxin on them that only, you know, you know, one out of a thousand queens survives, I will have a billion super ants in two or three seasons. Yeah. And, and we just don't think that way. And that's a really scary thought. Um, the other question I have is really the same question in a few different ways from the same person. Uh, Want to learn said he's curious about ideas and certifications for natural pest control business and urban uh, residential customers like getting rid of roaches from suburbia naturally. And he also says, curious for a while if it would be possible to monetize natural pest management in the urban environment as a side business. 
And would you need any certifications or anything for something like that? Uh, right. Um, we used to have a supply of cockroach parasites. These little tiny wasps, um, <coughs> excuse me, about a tenth of an inch long. That mama would uh, lay her egg in the cockroach egg case, or o o o o fica, technically called. And um, so we could just uh, uh, hook you up with uh, that fellow, and he would supply you with some, and you could um, uh, control the roaches that way. So uh, the commercial supply is not there, but the, the parasites are out there. So uh, first off is, is to use some uh, products that don't kill the parasites. The borate-based products are very effective and um, don't uh, uh, don't interfere with the life cycles of the parasites. So mm -hmm. you mix up boric acid, sugar, and maybe some um, oats or, or uh, something like that and put that out in the environment or, you know, like the flour is one of the ingredients. And so you can make a, a simple um, uh, cockroach bait. Um, there's a commercial one, magnetic roach food by Stapleton's, I think it is, is okay. a commercial product. Um, and uh, the um, uh, adult roaches eat it. They uh, go back to their nest in the middle of the walls and poop. And the um, their uh, nymphs, the little tiny cockroaches, eat that poop, and it, it kind of passes through the uh, the critters like that. So um, there's some roach baits that are very effective, and just in the kitchen area and such, you can just dust around with the uh, uh, powdered boric acid. If you can see it, that's too much on there. Um, we've got a whole. Um, uh, HTML page uh, cockroach program on our uh, Rincon Vitova website. So uh, we did a workshop on uh, how to manage roaches biologically, broad range of things. And we have a CD of that uh, of that workshop that you need to get up on, on YouTube. Um, and uh, so you, you can look for, if, if uh, you have like an institution or something like that, you can look for the um, uh, cockroach egg cases that are parasitized and then uh, put those in a sleeve cage and let the little wasps emerge and then uh, start culturing them. Um, it's very easy to grow cockroaches for food. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a number of, of structural pests that, that we can manage biologically. And um, generally the borate-based borate baits for ants and roaches uh, are very effective, extremely low risk. We use boric acid for washing our eyeballs, and it used to be used as a diet aid. You know, so average human adult can take, you know, something like an ounce of boric acid and you know, maybe just you know, mess up their 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 guts a little bit for a short period of time, but uh, no lasting effect. And it's safe around kids and dogs and pets and stuff like that. Um, so there's some real simple uh, low risk solutions in uh, urban pest control. First line of defense is exclusion. You just build your house so there's no you know open freeways coming in you know for the pest. So we'll just do one more, and then I want to let you go. Any ideas to decrease chiggers? Oh, chiggers. Oh, chiggers. Yeah. So chiggers. Yeah. Is when I was a kid, we always just dusted our uh, 
our waistline and our uh, ankle line around with uh, sulfur. Yeah, yeah. We put it in a sock, tie a knot in it, and you just kind of – it worked really good uh, growing up in Florida. I haven't seen a chigger here where I live in Texas or a roach, thank God, uh, in a very long time. I've, I've never seen a roach here. It's amazing how they are geographically attuned to certain uh, climates. When I grew up as a kid in Jacksonville, Florida – if you said there were no roaches at all in your home, you were just a liar because they just existed. They just were. Uh, we had them palmetto ones that were friggin' the size of a flying mouse, too. Um, but chiggers in Florida were a thing, man. In the in the swamp forests, you go in there without that repellent, and you'd have little bumps all over, especially, again, around your waist and your ankles. Any thoughts on, on managing them, though? Yeah, let's see. If I remember the biology right, there um, mites that feed on grain, and um, uh, some of the, one of the genus names is Pymotes, P-Y-M-O-T-E-S, and um, the uh, sulfur, dusting sulfur, you know, uh, in an area, you know, like we got an area was a grassy area around your place or something like that, you can get uh, dusting sulfur for 15 bucks for a 50 pound bag. And you get one of these uh, dusters, there's uh, these gizmos that have a crank on the side and blow out the, the dust. You want to wear a mask, a tight ceiling mask, because that stuff gets in your eyes, it burns. It's acceptable and organic, but I think it's one of the ones that, you know, is kind of hazardous as far as the effect on the body, uh, the powdered sulfur. But you can uh, dust the area uh, where you've got the grass, and it will dramatically decrease the uh, uh, the itch mites and the the chiggers uh, that way. The um, uh, for treating them, we really like the uh, uh, there's a product uh, Zengu Shui. It's a Chinese liniment that's got camphor and uh, menthol in it that is uh, very effective for reducing the itch. And uh, the um, camphor and menthol are like um, a, a vapor repellents of the um, uh, repellents are kill, actually kill the mites. And so it's kind of like a botanical insecticide and um, uh, also you know, decreases the itch. So it's something we found very effective here. And I'll say that what, I, what I've got up on the screen right now, if you've never seen Chigger, that's that's a bad, bad uh, case. I, it, I've never seen one that bad, but I've seen it almost that bad. And it is uh, it's a miserable thing. It's it's like the worst poison ivy you ever had mm-hmm. if you've never experienced the Chigger. Uh, but I'm always rid of them. We used to grow you know, millions of, of uh grain moss on uh, whole grain barley. And so uh, occasionally the uh, uh, culture would get infested with these uh, um, itch mites and the, um, they would eat the uh, um, uh, grain moth larvae. It was one we were growing was Sidotroga, the, the uh, grain moth. And um, uh, when the itch mites got in there, they would, uh, eat the larvae and wouldn't get any production and uh, handling the, the grain then was hazardous because we'd get, you know, all these itchy spots. So these little mites are actually burrowing in your skin. Yeah. And that's why it itches so much. Yeah. And so the, the camphor and menthol combo in some of these liniments is 
most effective surface treatment. Uh, I think increasing the um, uh, biodiversity, especially fungal biodiversity, would help. Um, like for um, ticks, there's a, a fungus that eats the, the larvae in the soil, so you can spray that around. And then as far as mechanical things for ticks, you can use a, a tick flag, um, a piece of uh, like a yard square of uh, light-colored flannel cloth on, on a stick and just kind of drag that all along the area. The ticks jump onto it, and they can just pick them up. It dramatically decreases the uh, ticks in the neighborhood. Well, man, I really enjoyed this discussion with you. Again, I'm going to remind folks that I have uh, all of your resources already in the show notes, except the stuff on the uh, the California work group that mm-hmm. wasn't in your original app. I've already emailed that to myself from the private chat, so I can't forget before I leave the room to get it like I did the last time a guest used that feature. So I'll add that in about one hour from right now. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com, all of Ron's resources, everything we talked about today will be with the audio notes when the audio side goes out. So So, I want to encourage everybody to bitch. Okay. (laughs) Tell your elected officials, tell your, your government bureaucrats, we want healthy food, in a healthy environment. Get it done. Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. Again, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely be happy to have you back on, Ron. Thanks for being with us today. Enjoy your day. All right, guys, real quick before I completely wrap up, wanted to let you guys know about our item of the day today. As you know, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. This is something that I've been promising to bring around for a while. Uh, I have my own uh, fertility program that I have been teaching for about seven years. And one of the keys to it is mycorrhizal inoculum. And mycorrhizal fungi form hyphae in the soil that literally attach to the roots of plants and effectively extend the root system. And this is a beneficial relationship for the fungi and for the plant. They kind of need each other. And the problem had become that there's a lot of this product that's crap. I'll just be honest with you. There's not a lot of oversight. There's not a lot of QC and quality control. And I had found an excellent product. And then it was discontinued, which happens all the time. And it took me two years to find one that I was really comfortable specifically recommending by brand. And it is Dynomco uh, Mycorrhizal Inoculum. And there's a couple things I like about it. One is just the the selection of of mycorrhizal fungi that are in it are exceptional. Uh, Two is the quantity is huge to the application compared to a lot of other ones. And yes, they have lab results that show this. But the other thing is, if you look at it, it's in little, for those that are on the video, it's in little granules. And those little granules are basically encapsulated so the fungi are protected uh, from exposure. So it has a longer shelf life. And I've been, I've trialed quite a few different varieties. This has given me so far the most aggressive root structure in plants. I'm talking, I've got, you know, pepper plants that are two inches tall that have four true leaves on them. And I'm using uh, 
12 ounce red solo cups like we used to party with in high school uh, with a hole drilled in the bottom for starting plants in this year. And that little pepper's got roots that have completely filled the entire cup. I give a lot of information on this. It is now my official recommendation within uh, my fertility program. Uh, and and you, I, I would definitely recommend that you consider using this stuff. One thing you need to know about mycorrhizal fungi, scale. And basically, it doesn't move. And it needs to be in contact with plant roots to do its thing and to start growing. So you need to apply it right at the root zone, not on the surface, not later on when the plant is as young as possible. So it forms a symbiotic relationship with the fungi as early as possible. The write-up will give you a lot of information about that. But remember, no matter what you buy, if you start your your shopping at tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what it is that you eventually buy. Also consider becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade or value for value support. You can do that on Noster. My pub key is in the video notes below. It's in the audio notes for every show that I've done for the last three weeks since I got on Noster. Or you can you know, support us through value for value uh, through a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain.fm. And as always, the best way to really support this show and the best return of investment on you guys is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get a bunch of discounts, you use your discounts, you get your money back, and you get more money than you spend back. So even if you hate me, you should join anyway because you'd be buying stuff that you're going to buy anyway and getting their money back on it. And if you do like the show, it's a great way to make sure that we're around for another 15 years. Yes, it is going to be 15 years this summer of the Survival Podcast. I've been talking to my wife. We're trying to figure out how we're going to do a 15-year anniversary party, kind of like we did for 10 but if you want us for another 15 years, make sure you're supporting the show. 30 years is a podcast. That could be a hell of a run. I think we're going to get there someday. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll 